and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, notice this, as it seemed good to the potter to do, or as it seemed good to him to make. Verse 5, then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil or repents, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, that is in vain or that is hopeless. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. You may be seated. Father, we thank you so much for your word and this time to come to worship you as we gather, not physically but in spirit, together to give you the glory and honor that you deserve. I think of each person who's tuning in and really the need we have to hear from you while we're um, struggling and confused. Whether we're suffering physically or financially, we're at least suffering with the questions that weigh on us regarding what will take place tomorrow. Uh, We need to be aware of your sovereignty over our lives and over the nations. Uh, We need to be aware that we're the clay and you're the potter in control of what we experience and go through. And I pray, Lord, that anything you have for your people this morning, you would deliver it from uh, me to them, just using, we think of the language in, in the passage, that I would just be your vessel at this time through which you would preach to your people, that they would hear from you and be encouraged and challenged by your word. They are waiting uh, day by day for Sunday to arrive and for you to speak to them through the sermon when we gather corporately. And so we have anticipation about what you want to say, Lord, and just remove me even at this time, meet with your people, minister to them personally, and to all of us corporately. Thank you for what you're doing in our church body, as Pastor Nathan shared, and the ways that we're reaching out to the community. At this time, Lord, let us just hear from you as you speak to us through your word, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Many men. The title of this morning's sermon is In the Hands of the Potter. In the Hands of the Potter. Let me be clear up front about why we're looking at this account. I would say simply that we are being shaped. We are being formed. The potter is shaping our lives. He's shaping our nation. Really, he's shaping the whole world. And we're going to consider how we should and how we shouldn't respond to this shaping or forming that the potter is doing. Since we're jumping into this book, I'll give you a little context. Jeremiah had a ministry of 40 years. He was the last prophet to the nation of Judah prior to them being taken into exile in Babylon in those three different waves. And so for decades, he preached to them. He delivered a series of messages. Unfortunately, they would not listen. We're jumping into the middle of his seventh message, which goes through chapter 20. We're going to be in chapter 18, 
Look, one chapter to the left at verse 23, Jeremiah 17, 23. Consider Jeremiah has been preaching for 20 years, and Jeremiah 17, 23 describes the response of the people. It says, Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, and then notice this, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. I just realized I could probably put this toward the other side if the camera's over there. So how does this clay look to you? It says stiff, hard. That's a good way to describe how the Jews have responded hard and stiff to Jeremiah's messages. And this verse is important because this is setting up the following chapter, Jeremiah 18, when God sends his faithful prophet to the potter's house to watch a potter so that he can report back to the people what happens to clay that does what? That hardens or stiffens itself in the potter's hands. And so this verse sets up chapter 18. Jeremiah 17, 23 sets up chapter 18. Go ahead and look at chapter 18 now. Verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. So more than likely, this would be a potter that Jeremiah would have some familiarity with, probably passed by his house some number of times. I'm not sure whether he had any relationship with him or had visited him before, but this time God tells him to head there, and it's going to provide for us one of the most well-known object lessons in all of Scripture. And then once Jeremiah reaches the potter's house and is able to observe his work, God says that he'll hear from him again. So look at verse 3. Jeremiah is speaking in the first person. He says, I went down to the potter's house, and there he was. He's watching this earthly potter making something at the wheel, and the vessel that he had made of clay was marred or was ruined in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. And so Jeremiah is observing this potter work at a wheel, and he's working with the clay, and it becomes marred or ruined in the potter's hands. And then Jeremiah watches as the potter very patiently and skillfully takes that clay and then remakes it, it says, into something that seems good to him. That Greek word for marred, it's shacketh, and it means destroyed or corrupted. In other words, it's not as though the clay was slightly messed up. The idea is that the clay was completely ruined. That's what it means by corrupted or destroyed. Uh, Ruined is how it's translated in some Bibles. But this potter, he's very patient, he's very skilled, and so he's able to take this clay, and then he's able to make it into something else that seems good to him. Look at verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, So after Jeremiah had watched all this, saying, O house of Israel, because as a prophet, Jeremiah is going to relay this to the people, that God has said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And so God makes two important connections here. He connects himself with the potter, and then he connects the people with the clay. Vessels, whether the clay vessels that this potter would make or the clay vessels that all of us as people represent have purposes. And so the nation of Israel, as God's vessel, had a purpose that they were not fulfilling. They were marred, 
But God makes the point that he can remake them and turn them into something that seems good to him. And this brings us to lesson one on your um, worship guides. Hopefully you receive those. Lesson one, the potter is sovereign over part one nations. The potter is sovereign over part one nations. Quite a few verses I could give you about God's sovereignty over the nations. Here's just a few of them. Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 4.17, the living may know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will and sets over them the lowliest of men. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Acts 17.26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. When it says their dwelling place, the, the there is the nations of the earth, and so it's saying that God has allotted the periods of time and the boundaries for all the nations. And so God is shaping and forming the nations like the potter does with the clay. And I think this is particularly important to keep in mind with everything that's happening with the coronavirus because things could look like they are not in God's control or they could even look as though things are spiraling out of control. It could practically look like God has lost control, especially in some of the more devastated countries. But this passage teaches, as do many other places in Scripture, that God is sovereign, everything is unfolding according to his plan, there's nothing that's taking place outside of his will, people might be panicking, but God sits on his throne. And no matter the turmoil or confusion that's taking place throughout the world, there is no turmoil or confusion that takes place in the throne room of God. There's nothing that has surprised the Lord, no matter how surprised we might be. It's, it's almost astounding just to think back only a few weeks ago and how much our world has changed. It was only a couple weeks ago, Pastor Nathan and I were down at the Shepherd's Conference. We come back, kind of saw a couple people. You know, the airports were pretty packed. There were a few people with masks on, and then it just unfolds so quickly after that. You know, the quarantine and the way everyone's lives are changing so dramatically. It, and so the point is, it can seem so surprising or shocking test, but we can be greatly comforted that there is no surprise with the Lord, that he's not at all shocked by what has taken place. Just to drive this point home, God's control over the nations, he presents two scenarios in the following verses. Look at verse 7. He says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. And so God's talking about judging a nation, and this is what I would expect him to say. The instant that I speak concerning a nation to pluck it up, to pull it down, or to destroy it, is the instant that what? Is the instant that it's plucked up or pulled down or destroyed. But instead, so God's talking about judging a nation, but verse 8 says, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So if you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, turns from its evil, and you can write the word repent, because this is a concise description of repentance. Probably the the simplest description of repentance in all of the Bible. We have these different definitions, and right here is a perfect one, turns from evil. That's what it means to repent, to turn from evil. And 
I think this is important to consider because I hear, or probably better way to say it is read, many people's blogs or Facebook posts about everything that's taking place with the coronavirus, I could probably count on one hand the number of times that people have discussed repentance or the number of times that people have discussed humbling themselves. I'm not going to presume to know exactly what God is doing through the coronavirus or what he wants to do globally, but I can say this. There are some things that are absolutes and unchanging. God wants humility from his people. He wants repentance. He wants his people on their faces praying. And this is one thing that he could be producing. But sadly, I don't hear people talking about that. I suppose it's not as popular. People want to talk about the, they're focusing, kind of related to Jameson's devotional. There's this tremendous focus on what's happening physically. I see almost no focus on what God wants to do spiritually. And so while I don't want to sound at all insensitive to what is happening to many people physically or financially, or even mentally and emotionally associated with a depression or discouragement um, from being inside. But of greater importance is what God wants happening spiritually through this. And so we should be repentant people. It should be an ongoing, we should have lives of repentance as we become more and more like Christ and more and more sin is shaved away from us. We must have lives of repentance and humility. And that's what I'm convinced God wants to bring about through the coronavirus, because that's what God always wants to bring about. It wouldn't be any different now. So this first scenario, God says, if he threatens to judge a nation and they repent, then he will relent. Now, can you think of any premier example of that in scripture? To me, the Ninevites. Jonah 3.10, God saw the Ninevites' works that they turned from their evil, and God relented. It's practically word for word, the language of Jeremiah 18. God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And so if a nation repents, which is to say turns from its evil, then God repents, which is to say he turns from the judgment that he was going to bring. And this presents an interesting situation, because perhaps when I mentioned God repenting or relenting or changing his mind, especially if you have an amount of familiarity with the Old Testament, verses come to mind that state that God does not change his mind or he does not repent. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do, or has he spoken and he will not make it good? 1 Samuel 15, 29, God will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So how do we explain God seemingly changing his mind here when he says he's going to judge a nation and then he doesn't. Well, it's not so much an issue of God changing his mind. It's just that he's giving nations a choice. And he's saying that if you continue down this road of sin, then judgment is what awaits you. But if you're to repent or you're to change and you're to go another direction away from your sin, then you will be avoiding the judgment or punishment that I would bring. Now, the second scenario, look at verse 9. He says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good 
with which I said I would benefit it. Now, building and planting, that's the opposite of earlier plucking down, you know, pulling down. This is the idea of blessing. So where previously it was judgment, now it's referring to blessing. And God's saying if he plans to bless a nation, but that nation repents of their good or turns from their good to evil, then the opposite takes place and God turns from or he relents of the good that he planned to bring to that nation. And now God moves from nations to individuals. Look at verse 11. He's talking about nations. Now he talks about individuals. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. I just want you to notice the transition that takes place here in these verses. In verses 6 through 10, God was speaking nationally. He said, O house of Israel, in verse 6. And now in verse 11, he begins speaking individually to people. He says, speak to the men of Judah. Speak to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He says, return now every one of you individually. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. The potter is sovereign over part two individuals. So the potter is sovereign over part one nations and then part two individuals. God isn't just sovereign over nations. He's also sovereign over individuals. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you our potter and all we are the work of your hand. When it says that we're the work of God's hand, the New Testament equivalent would be Ephesians 2.10, which says that we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Something interesting in these verses, that Hebrew word for potter, over half of the times that it occurs, Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it is translated as formed, fashioned, form, fashion, or make. So the same word for potter, when translated elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, over half the times it's translated as form, fashion, or make, which is fitting because that's what potters are doing with clay. They're forming it or fashioning it or making it. The Hebrew word for potter, it's yatsar. It's the same word that God used when commissioning Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, that's yatsar, the same word for potter, before I formed you yatsar in the womb, I knew you. And so the point is this, just as God formed Jeremiah, he forms what? Every individual, every piece of clay. As the potter had power over that clay, he has power over our circumstances. Paul carries this imagery forward in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 4-7, he calls us earthen or clay vessels. And I just want you to think about this for a moment and why it's so fitting for us to be compared with clay. There are a few reasons. First, clay comes from the ground. Where did we come from originally? We came from the ground. Genesis 2-7, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Second, clay is fragile. Sometimes, I think especially if we're young, we can feel somewhat invincible. We don't think about death. We don't consider that our bodies are fragile. But when sickness is introduced, especially when there's 
I can't think of another time in my life that resembles what we're experiencing at this time. I think the coronavirus, better than probably any time at least in my lifetime, has revealed the fragile nature of our bodies or how much we are like clay. Job felt this way during his trials when he was suffering and afflicted physically. He saw himself as this very fragile clay. Job 4.19, he said, we dwell in houses of clay, referring to our bodies. Our foundation is in the dust. In Job 10.9, he said, remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? And so what Job was really doing was praying that God would recognize just how fragile his body is, that he is clay, or that he is just made from the dust, in the hope that it would lead God to ease his suffering. We can feel like this during trials, wondering, or we can feel specifically like Job, wondering if God recognizes how fragile we are. We might feel like praying like Job did and saying, God, do you know how weak I am? Do you know that this suffering feels like too much for me? Can you remember that you have made me like clay and that this might be too much for me to handle? And I mention that because should we feel that way, should we be tempted to wonder whether God knows what we're experiencing or what we're going through? One of the great encouragements from this account is that yes, he does. As the potter, he is completely familiar with the clay and what we're experiencing. Psalm 103, 14, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And so what that means is that he knows how strong we are. And conversely, you could say how strong we're not or how weak we are. He knows what we can and what we can't handle. He knows what is best for us. He knows what we should experience, what we shouldn't experience. And I just hope that you can be encouraged by that. I don't want you receiving my opinion or my thoughts about the circumstances in your life or what you're going through. I would want, my heart is for you to hear from God through his word. And as you see this account, one of the premier points that God, I believe, would want all of us to take home is that as the potter, he is familiar with his clay, and he knows what's best, and as much control, or I would even say even more control, than that potter had in his house as he worked that clay that was on that wheel— God has even greater control over our lives and the circumstances in it. Regarding that wheel, look back at the end of verse 3 one more time. I just want you to see this. It says, Jeremiah says, I went down to the potter's house, and there he was. He was making something at the wheel. And so here's what uh, took place. Perhaps this is even what it looks like for some potters even today. A potter would sit, and he would have two stone wheels between him. He would have one stone wheel by his feet, and then he would have another stone wheel that was about at the level of his hands, and there would be this long shaft that joined them. And then the potter would turn that bottom wheel with his feet, and since it's connected to the top wheel, it would cause that top wheel to turn as he worked on that clay that was sitting on top of it. And this wheel, it's a picture of life, as much as the potter is a picture of God, as much as the clay is a picture of each of us, this wheel is, in a sense, the wheel of life. And the potter controls the wheel, and he controls the clay on it, just like God controls our lives and the circumstances that we experience as we sit on that wheel or as we go through life. And you think of that wheel 
kind of going around and around, and I considered that there might not be another time recently, or maybe in all of our lives, where we have felt as much like clay on a wheel that's just going around and around as we're stuck in our homes. And perhaps it feels like we're missing out, or perhaps it feels like life is, is passing us by. Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And the point of that verse is that it's describing how being on this wheel feels, like just going around and around and around and around, and that there's nothing new. And while we're experiencing this season that we're at home and feeling like we're not out there experiencing the things that we could, we have so many days that have been numbered, and many of them are passing while, uh, while we're unable to even go outside or interact with anyone. We can feel like that clay that's just going nowhere. But here's the thing. If you understand that you're the clay and that God is the potter and that he is in control of that wheel or your life, then you know you're where God wants you. And you know that you're experiencing what he wants you to experience. And you know that he knows what is best for you. And to be candid with you, for those of us who have families, in many respects, this can be a wonderful time. I can't think God has slowed our lives down. We live in one of the busiest nations in the world. I shared some statistics months back about how Americans work more hours per week than any other nation, and God has slowed us down, and he's put us in our homes. Many people just striving to find even a few hours, not per day, but per week with their family members, and what God has done is he has afforded us a tremendous amount of time, many of us, to be together, and I would just say take advantage of it. Don't miss out on what God, a gift, God might be giving you a blessing God could be giving you at this time to be with your wife, to be with your husband, to be with your children and enjoy it. If I can just share a little about my family, I'm watching my kids get older considerably faster than I would like. <laughs> I generally tell them that they're a couple years younger than they are, which always kind of irritates them. I'm joking, but the fact is I just feel like they're, they're getting you know, older. We have eight children and I, I hugged my daughter, Rhea, goodnight last night and, and gave her a kiss on the cheek. And I just thought, wow, you know, she looks like a young lady. And it, wasn't, it seemed to me that it wasn't that long ago. You probably don't care to hear me go on and on about my family. But anyway, uh, just the fact is my children seem like they're getting older very, very fast. And I'm very thankful for this time that I have with them. I can work at home, and my tendency is to want to get back to work and you know, remind them that I still have these things to do. I always feel behind. I always feel like my inbox is full. But to be able to appreciate this time that I have that I won't, I'm not going to have with them in the future when they start their own families. And so let that just be an encouragement to really, to really savor and appreciate what I believe God has given you or what can be a great blessing in the midst of an otherwise trying time that can actually take that time. And if you see it this way, view it as a wonderful thing. Now, follow me for a moment. Pretty much, I think, because of everything that transpired with Judas, 
we know that potters had fields, right? When he returned the money, most of us know what took place after that. Matthew 27, 6, the chief priests took the silver pieces and they said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. They consulted together and then the chief priests bought with them the potter's fields. And so we know the potters have fields. And here's a question, why? Why do potters have fields? To discard or get rid of their marred or their ruined vessels. So at the beginning of the account, when it says that the clay was marred, what potters typically did is they would take that clay and then they would just discard it, throw it out into that field, and perhaps it would get broken down, you know, by the rain and the weather and so forth, and then they could go out and, and they could get more clay from this field in the future. And I just want you to think about that. It was so common for potters to get rid of their vessels that they would have their own fields for discarding them. Now you say, well, why do they discard those marred vessels? Why didn't they do what this potter did and remake them? And the answer is pretty straightforward. There's two reasons. First, clay is cheap. So potters could easily get more clay. And second, like many things in life, it can be easier to start over from scratch than to try to fix something. And so for many potters, when that vessel is marred or ruined, they would just discard it and start all over. But in this account, which is part of why what God wants us to see, his prophet is sent to the house of a potter who doesn't discard the vessel. Instead, he very patiently continues to work that clay until it is turned into something that is valuable, is able to fix the mess that this clay had become. Clay is a cheap and worthless material. The only way that it can become something valuable is if it's in the hands of what? A skilled potter. And do you see the application for us? We have about as much chance of turning ourselves into something valuable as that clay does that sits on that wheel. We have about as much chance in our marred or ruined condition, which all of us are because we are descendants of Adam. We are, we are all born with sinful natures. We are all marred. We are all ruined. And we have about as much chance of fixing our conditions as that clay does that sits on that wheel, but in the hands of a patient and skilled, and I would even say loving and gracious potter, we can become something that seems good to him. That's the language that's used, and it's beautiful to me. Not something to, I, I, I love this. I want you to appreciate it. It doesn't say become something that seems good to everyone else in the whole world. It doesn't even say seems good to anyone else at all, but seems good to the potter. And that's what's important. It would be better to seem good to him than to seem good to everyone else in the whole world and not seem good to him. And that's what God can do with our lives. J. Wilbur Chapman, he said, the clay, it is not attractive in itself, but when the hands of the potter touch it, 
and the thought of the potter is brought to bear upon it, and the plan of the potter is worked out in it and through it, then there is a real transformation. Just this morning, I suppose, because service started, or is starting later, you know, normally we get to the church earlier, there's Sunday school, there's prayer time, coming to the church later, I had more time and I decided to watch a video of a potter working at a wheel, forming the clay. And it's a very wonderful thing to see this skilled person take this pretty ugly (laughs) clump of clay and, you know, begin massaging it and turning it, watching it develop into, to me, was a a pretty beautiful and useful-looking vase. He constructs this lid for it, and it was just wonderful. And as I saw that, I thought, you know, that's what the Lord is doing with us. He is constructing us and our lives into something that is valuable to him or seems good to him. And I think this is one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture regarding God's work in our lives. We're marred vessels as descendants of Adam. Our sinful natures have ruined us, but the heavenly potter doesn't give up. He doesn't discard us. He keeps working on us, massaging us. And I don't say this because of this account. I say this because the New Testament also says this. Philippians 1.6, we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so anyone that's tuning in, whether you attend Woodland Christian Church or attend another church or whether you don't attend church at all, I would just say you might feel like a marred or disfigured or flawed vessel. But there is a potter that instead of discarding you, throwing you away, and starting over with someone else, he will continue working on you, reshaping you till you become something that seems good to him, precious and valuable. To be very clear, the end or the goal is the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, and I don't think that there could be a better image for us to reflect. Now let's see, with all that in mind, what happened with the Jews. Take a look at verse 12. Consider what kind of clay they were. They said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. This is an almost unimaginable response. I want to get you, uh, I want you to take an elevated view of the book of Jeremiah. The book is not arranged uh, chronologically, it's arranged topically. And the reason I mention that is because we're in chapter 18. You could think, well, perhaps, you know, the first few chapters of the introduction and Jeremiah has not been speaking to the people that long. But the fact is, is, this is during the reign of Jehoiakim, which means that Jeremiah has been preaching to the Jews for upwards of 20 years. They've been hearing messages from him. And when you consider this, you see what happened with them. They had become so hardened in their sin that they actually said the possibility of repentance was what? Hopeless or vain. They got to the point that they were even comfortable stating their position honestly. I mean, you notice the honesty from them. Of course, a terribly discouraging response, but at least they were honest, I suppose. They said, no, we're going to walk according to our own plans. We're going to obey the dictates of our evil hearts. There's no excuses. There's no blame shifting. There's no hypocrisy. At least they're transparent. 
And it kind of reminds me of students I used to teach. There were times in the classroom where I would tell a student, if you will shape up, if you'll do what's right, you will stop being punished. You'll start enjoying the same privileges as other students. And some students would say to me, that's hopeless. They, sound just, they sounded just like the Jews. I've always been this way. I mean, they're like 10 years old. You know, I taught fifth grade. It hasn't been that long. But they'd say, it's, it's hopeless. I can't change. I've always been like this. And I would say that I hope none of the kids in our church are like this. If there's any kids that are listening, I hope many are. Your parents try to speak truth into your life. God uses your parents to preach to you. God uses your parents and your pastor, pastors, your home fellowship leaders, any individuals that he's put in your life to graciously deliver the word of God to you. And hopefully you wouldn't be like this. You wouldn't say it's no use. I've always been like this. I can't change. I'm going to continue doing what I've always been doing. If this describes you, you don't have to be that hard, stiff, stubborn clay. Today can be that day of repentance for you. You can turn from your sins to Christ. You can cry out to him to deliver you from those sins that have plagued you. And he can begin that remaking process on your life so you become a vessel that seems good to him. But many of you might have been thinking this. It's not just kids that can be like this. Perhaps you've met adults, or you could even be an adult who feels like this, so chained to your sin that the idea of repentance seems hopeless. There's a sin that you have been engaging in for so long, you cannot imagine yourself separate from it. You cannot see your life without that sin in it. So you say it's hopeless. I can't be delivered from pornography, or I can't be delivered from drugs, or this addiction to alcohol, or this addiction to anger, or bitterness, or deceit. And so the idea of repentance seems hopeless to you. And the reality of this account is you don't have to feel hopeless. You can cry out to the potter to remake you and work in your life so you no longer have to be this marred vessel. Now, because Judah was like this, they're not going to repent. They said that they were going to follow, notice this, they're going to follow their own evil plans. They're going to follow the dictates, it's very interesting to read this, of their evil hearts. And it's interesting to read this considering what's written in the previous chapter. Just look one chapter to the left at Jeremiah 17, 9 to see what it says about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I don't think it's remotely chance or coincidental that we happen to read this in Jeremiah 17, 9, setting us up for Jeremiah 18, where the Jews said, we're going to obey the dictates of our evil hearts. Our hearts are the very last thing we should be following or obeying. So with this understanding of what the Jews were like, here's an interesting question that I want you to consider. God can remake, as we've been discussing, marred vessels into vessels that seem good to him. But what happens to marred or ruined vessels that are like Judah, that are hardened or stiff in his hands that prevent the potter from remaking them? These are the vessels that have a field. (laughs) 
These are the vessels that end up being discarded. And this brings us to lesson two. The Jews' hardness made them into discarded vessels. Lesson two, the Jews' hardness made them discarded vessels. When clay is marred and ruined, when it hardens us, not when it's marred and ruined and soft, but when it's marred and ruined and hard or stiff in the potter's hands, preventing the potter from working it, It's good for nothing but being discarded. And this is not my opinion. This is exactly what happened to the Jews. Look one chapter to the right to chapter 19, verse 1. Jeremiah 19, verse 1. God has another object lesson for his prophet. Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen or clay flask or vessel and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. So Jeremiah is told to go get a vessel from, the pro- from a potter, or the potter more than likely. He gets this vessel from the potter that he was just visiting. In chapter 18, he's told to bring some of the elders with him. They're going to be credible witnesses to what they observe Jeremiah do. Then they can report back to the people what they see take place. Considering how unpopular Jeremiah was with the Jewish leaders, I have to suspect that this was probably an interesting trip. <laughs> to observe. Jeremiah was pretty despised, particularly despised by the leaders of the nation because he was saying, submit to Babylon, go to Babylon and you will live, remain in the land and you will die. And so these leaders that go with him, I I bet that this was not a very, I I doubt they were being friendly to him (laughs) or respectful of his ministry, but he brings them with him. We don't have time to read all the verses. Skip to verse 10 to see what Jeremiah does with this vessel or this pot. Jeremiah 19.10, God said, Then you shall break the flask, or the vessel, in the sight of the men who go with you, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Even so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel. So one more time, God says, I'm going to break this people, the people of Judah. I'm going to break this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet. This is where they sacrifice children, the Valley of Hinnom, and there is no place to bury. So it's not hard to figure out what's going on, is it? Jeremiah is told to take this vessel. He's told to walk out to this field, bring many of the leaders of the nation, civic and religious leaders, and have them watch as he takes this vessel and he just shatters it before them. And they're to be told that this vessel represents the nation of Judah. And essentially, this violent destruction of this vessel pictures the violent destruction that's coming against Judah because of their unrepentance, or God's going to shatter the nation using the Babylonians the way that Jeremiah shattered this vessel. And so, to be clear, this is what happens to hard clay. This is what happens to clay that stiffens itself in the potter's hand. Now, consider this important verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, because here's what you could say. You could say, well, Pastor Scott, you know, you're talking about the Jews. You're talking about the nation of Israel. First Corinthians ten eleven says, all these things happen to the Jews or at, to Israel as examples for us. This is written by Paul to a New Testament church, encouraging that church because the epistles are the letters of instruction for church age believers, which is to say this is written to us that all these things happen to the Jews as examples for us, and they're written for our admonition or our instruction. And so we're to learn from it. And so the question is not, 
does this apply to us? The question is, what application do we take from it? Or how does it apply to us? And the answer brings us to lesson three. We must be soft in the potter's hands. We must be soft in the potter's hands. Every time I read this account, it reminds me or convicts me about definitely not something that uh, is always the case in my life, but reminds me of the need to be soft, pliable, teachable, in the potter's hands. And if you want to pray for me, I'm trying to consider, you know, we, what the Lord wants me to share with the church each week. I get this one opportunity, 53 Sundays. It's not a lot of Sundays to have with your people. And I want to I want to get the most out of every one of these messages that the Lord allows me. And there's something really interesting in the New Testament. Judas is a vessel, a broken vessel, in many respects. And I'm considering, would would God have us look at that next week? Is that where he would have us go and consider what happened with Judas, this broken vessel? And I, I understand that that might not seem to relate as much with the coronavirus, but in many respects, I think it does. Because when... The Tower of Siloam fell. It was interesting. Jesus' response was this. You must repent or you likewise will perish. And so to me, is there a more fitting time to consider Judas than when there would be a pandemic, when many people would be getting sick or potentially dying, or when that's at the forefront of people's minds and they most, might be the most sensitive to repentance? When they're, when they're seeing the Tower of Siloam falling around them, so could there be even a better account for us to consider than Judas, this broken vessel? So just pray for me that, I, that the Lord, and I know there's many other um, very serious prayer requests. I mean, you can put that lower on your list, but I covet any prayers when the Lord brings me to mind that I will go to the passages that he would have me share with you. And that's what I'm considering for next week. I'll let you know if you receive my, my messages during the week, my weekly announcements, whether that's what we go through as I'm praying about it too. But I think considering Judas could be a, a powerful example for us. Now, these verses are important because we live in a world, and it doesn't just have to be when the coronavirus is taking place, that demands assertiveness from us. There are few things that this world preaches the world that is governed by the devil, more intensely than assertiveness, stubbornness, independence, being strong-willed. That's what the world says we should be. And the problem is, when that creeps into our relationships with the Lord, it often causes us to be stiff or hard in the potter's hands. And so I think these verses are very important for us to be considering. Do not buy in to any of the propaganda, I would even say satanic information that comes forward tempting you to rebel or harden yourself in the hands of the potter or turn from him and curse him, as Job's wife told him to do as we studied uh, the other week. So here's what's interesting. I've told you many times before that handling Scripture, it often requires finding the right balance. That's one of the more difficult things about preaching God's Word. It's not that black and white all the time. There are truths that need to be harmonized or reconciled, and we're looking at one of those premier instances right now because we've talked about the sovereignty of God up to this point, and we should 
Because this passage is filled with confidence in the sovereignty of God. But do me a favor. Turn to Jeremiah 18 and look with me at a few verses. In Jeremiah 18, it says in verse 8, If that nation against whom I've spoken will turn from its evil. In verse 10, if that nation does evil in my sight, so that it, it does not obey my voice. In verse 12, they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans. We will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. What do you see in these verses? You see the free moral agency of man. So if someone said, well, is this passage about the sovereignty of God or is it about the free moral agency of the clay? I would say yes. You see the sovereignty of God, but you see plenty of responsibility placed on the shoulders of the clay. How do these work together? in this account, the sovereignty of God and the free moral agency of man, nothing has changed what I've said. We still have no ability to fix or remedy ourselves. The clay can summon as much strength as it has, and it's not going to become a better piece of clay. But the clay can be soft in the potter's hands. It can be pliable, it can be submissive, so the potter can shape it. Or it can be hard, it can be stubborn, it can be stiff, in which case it doesn't get fixed. It remains marred, it remains ruined, and then inevitably it becomes a discarded vessel. Listen to this warning, Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a vessel among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? And so we shouldn't strive with the potter, or we should not work against him. So here's what I want you to think about. We don't literally feel God's hands on our lives working us. You can't look and say, oh, that's God's hand, or this is God's hand, but we do feel the many things that God uses to form us. The potter's hands form the clay, and there are many hands that God is using to mold us. Parents, siblings, teachers, authors, God's discipline, elders, trials, and presently he's using the coronavirus. These are all the different hands that God has forming and fashioning us. But here's the difficulty. Being formed doesn't feel good. Often our flesh doesn't like it. When the potter shapes us on the wheel of life, it can be uncomfortable. It can even be painful. Now, unlike the clay in chapter 18, which has no free will of its own, we choose how we respond in the potter's hands. And we can respond in one of two ways, and both of these ways are illustrated for us in the New Testament. You're familiar with one way. Romans 9, Paul looks back on this analogy from Jeremiah of the potter and the clay. And Paul presents probably or at least one of the premier examples in Scripture of a hardened vessel, of a vessel that continued to harden himself, harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart, over and over again in Romans 9, and that's Pharaoh. Pharaoh demonstrates the painful consequences of clay that stiffens itself against the potter's will. If we become hard and stiff in the potter's hands, then we're acting like Pharaoh in Moses' day, we're acting like the Jews in Jeremiah's day, and we are setting ourselves up for judgment. We're setting ourselves up for punishment. And why is that? 
because when clay hardens or stiffens itself in the potter's hands, it can no longer be formed. And then it is no longer good for anything but being discarded or thrown out into the potter's field. What's the other response? The other response is having soft, pliable, submissive hearts. And then God will make us into something that seems good to him, as it said in Jeremiah 18.3. This isn't my opinion. Listen to these other New Testament verses. Both outcomes are prevented or presented for us in the New Testament. You've got Pharaoh in Romans 9, but then listen to what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. There are some vessels for honor and some for dishonor. And then you say, well, obviously we want to be vessels of honor. Paul tells us how that can be the case in our lives. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, which is to say if anyone has a soft, pliable, submissive heart, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. This is practically the same message as Jeremiah 18.3, that a soft, pliable person will become a vessel for honor, one that is sanctified, which is to say conformed into the image and likeness of God's Son. I want to close by asking you to think about how this applies to us today. Considering everything taking place around us, what does it mean to be soft in the, in the potter's hands? What does that look like practically for us? Well, first, I would say it means not giving in to fear. Being people of faith means not being people of fear. Those are mutually exclusive. It means we're going to trust the potter regarding the circumstances that we're experiencing. Second, it means striving to be content. If there are things that we are to go without during this season, then we accept that. We embrace it and trust that God knows what's best for us and what we should and shouldn't have in our lives, and we do it without grumbling. We do it without complaining. If there's things, limitations in our lives that we're experiencing, part of submitting to the potter's hands in our lives is saying, thank you, Lord. You know what's best. I don't need to go there. I don't need to have this. I don't need to enjoy this. I don't need to experience this. I don't need to buy this. I don't need this right now. And I thank you for that because I know that you know what's best for me. We're spending a lot of time together as families. For many of us, being soft in the potter's hands is shown through the way we treat each other. So if we have soft, pliable hearts, then we're going to be soft and gentle toward our family members. It's a soft answer that turns away wrath. And so if we're going to be taking advantage of this time and allowing the potter to be working molding and fashioning our families, it's going to mean gentleness, kindness, humility toward each other. It's going to mean being good stewards of the time that God has given us. Ephesians 5, 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, whatever you think that means exactly, that the days are evil, I don't think I can help my mind going to what it feels like during the coronavirus. Redeem this time that God has given us. Be good stewards of it. Don't just sit there watching. I read something, how tragic this was the other day. How many people are just using this time to binge watch Netflix? I mean, what a tragedy. That's the opposite of Ephesians 5.16. That is not redeeming the time. That is wasting the time that God has given us. There are plenty of wonderful things that we can be doing. Pastor Nathan mentioned some of them. People that need prayer, people that we can call, Bible studies that we can read or go through as families. While we're separated from each other, we can be lifting each other up in prayer. Now, Woodland Christian Church 
My hope is that this sermon ministers to your hearts, encourages you to be soft in the potter's hands. Picture yourself being that pliable vessel this week on the potter's wheel while it's spinning around and around, and you're being shaped for God and for his glory. Father, we thank you that you are the potter and we are the clay, and that you are doing a good work in our lives, in our nation, and in our world, and help us to be submitted to it. We thank you for your sovereignty and pray that by your grace, we would be that clay that is being shaped and fashioned into something that seems good to you, which is really to save the image and likeness of your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.